welcome uh, to a discussion of, of the Syrian humanitarian crisis. We're going to talk this morning um, about the COVID-19 recovery and the next stage of the Syrian refugee response after 10 years. And we will also be launching a report this morning, which many of you received, and if not, we'll make sure you get it as part of this conversation. I'm Andrew Seeley, I'm president of the Migration Policy Institute. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to this conversation. Um, we are entering the 10th year of the Syrian humanitarian crisis. Um, it is a crisis that is, remains the largest refugee crisis in the world. Um, it is a crisis that continues to call attention around the world as it should. And we will see at the end of this month, the Brussels conference where international actors are also discussing their role and the co-responsibility in, in what remains the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. One of the things as we're getting into the 10th year to think about is long-term strategies on integration. One of the things we've learned from research around the world is that integration in host societies and, and the countries around Syria have been immensely generous in taking people in when they were fleeing from, from violence and war in Syria. But one of the things that is most beneficial, not only for refugees and migrants, but for host societies is looking at integration, how people become full members of society, to what extent they can contribute fully to the labor markets, can be part of, of public services, and can be part of public life. And this is plays out differently in different societies. Every society has to make its own decisions, but moving in that direction is something that benefits not only refugees and migrants who clearly benefit, but also host societies. And so beginning that conversation, continuing that conversation, deepening that conversation is something that we want to, to do today. We've been very fortunate to work with, with DSP of Durable Solutions Project over the past year, almost a year actually, Kat, um, on a about nine or 10 months looking at experiences from around the world that can maybe useful in the context of, of host societies uh, of the Syrian diaspora, uh, Syrian refugees in the region. Um, we've looked at examples from Europe and Africa, the, elsewhere in the Middle East, from Asia and from Latin America. Um, and the report that you either have or will receive shortly um, is a report that really tries to draw on those experiences and try and look at what might be useful in the context of the Syrian refugee crisis called A Bridge to Firmer Ground, Learning from International Experiences to Support Pathways to Solutions in the Syrian Refugee Context, and a great honor for us to work with DSP on this. And I wanna call out Camille Lacos, who from MPI was the person who led this effort, and Camille, you'll hear from at the end, talking about this, this report. She worked with her colleagues, Sam Davidoff, Gore, Timo Schmidt, Susan Fratsky, um, Andrea Tanko, um, Belen Zanzucci, and Jessica Bolter. Um, who all have, have put a lot of work into this over the past year, and I uh, want to thank all of them for, for their work. Um, today, we have a phenomenal panel um, from the region talking about what's going on. We want to spend most of our time talking about what's actually happening on the ground. We'll talk about the report at the end of, of this conversation today, and I will present the panelists in a moment. We really have four outstanding panelists that you're going to want to hear. But before that, um, I, my great honor to, to go to the director of DSP to to uh, Catherine to say a few words. So Catherine Achilles, um, lead us off in the conversation. Thanks Andrew, and good afternoon and good morning everyone. And thank you so much for joining this really important discussion today. Um, the Durable Solutions Platform is an initiative of six INGOs, which is aimed at conducting research and stimulating policy dialogue on long-term solutions for displaced Syrians across the region. And we're really pleased to be partnering with the Migration Policy Institute on the research launch today and on this discussion panel. And really can't thank the MPI team enough for the amazing collaboration and on the report. Ahead of 
Brussels conference next week and its discussions on support to host countries, creative approaches to sustaining refugee self-reliance and bolstering the resilience of host communities and countries are really urgently needed. This includes learning lessons from our interventions to date, addressing the barriers to economic and social inclusion of refugees that we now face, as well as looking to other contexts that are grappling with similar challenges to see what we can learn from them. The conference, of course, comes at two really grim milestones. Um, the first is 10 years of conflict and displacement from and inside Syria, and one year of the pandemic and its severe social and economic impacts globally. Countries in the region are now grappling with a complex series of challenges with rising unemployment and poverty across the board, creating unprecedented pressures on hosting countries to shore up resilience and self-reliance of refugees and citizens alike. And so in many ways, I think we find ourselves again at a crossroads when it comes to the Syrian response. How will we rise to the challenges given the broader economic reality? And how can we ensure that there is coherence and integration of the broader recovery that needs to happen in the region and the refugee response to really ensure that nobody is left behind and to promote these longer term solutions for Syrians? These questions are really at the heart of DSP's work on host states um, and on our focus on supporting medium term approaches to displacement. By focusing on medium-term approaches, we recognize that while durable solutions might be elusive right now, steps can be taken to promote the rights of displaced persons and vulnerable host communities to live safely, securely, and with dignity in displacement, and that enhanced resilience and self-reliance can, can contribute to the pursuit of the different durable solutions, and in doing so, enable people to realize their individual preferences and choices in the future as conditions change to allow them to do so. This really requires us to consistently learn and adapt to support people. Our work as DSP has looked at how cash assistance can play a role in supporting longer term outcomes in Lebanon, looked at effective social safety nets for vulnerable people in Jordan and Iraq, and examines the financial architecture in the region. And of course, together with MPI, learning lessons from other contexts to really revitalize discussions at this really critical juncture, both for DSP's work and for our broader community. So I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and the insights from our very esteemed panelists and the audience in taking this discussion forward, supporting and driving discussions at the Brussels conference next week in relation to these and charting a renewed course um, for support to the refugee response in the countries that are hosting them. Thank you very much. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Catherine, that was fabulous. And thank you for everything you do at Durable Solutions Platform. Um, extraordinary effort. And for us, it's been a great partnership working with you over the past few months and benefiting from your network and expertise as we thought what could be relevant in, in, in the global experiences that we wanted to bring to the table. And we really appreciate that and everything you do. Um, let me turn to a, a phenomenal panel um, that we have today. I'm going to introduce them briefly, and then we're going to go straight into the conversation. Um, Hassan Jenedi is the executive director of Busla, a CEO, CSO in Turkey aimed at building knowledge and skills for Syrians to rebuild their communities. He's an experienced trainer, program manager, and capacity builder, and has consulted for multiple UN agencies and INGOs. Uh, Sally Abikahil is the country director of Oxfam Lebanon, the first Lebanese woman to run a major international NGO within the Syrian re response in Lebanon. She's worked extensively on humanitarian and development issues in the Middle East over the past two decades, including as the chair of the Lebanon Humanitarian INGO Forum. At Oxfam, she's led humanitarian response programming, social innovation, entrepreneurship initiatives for youth and women, promoting the right to work, establishing civil society networks, and promoting feminist approaches towards leadership and collective action. Welcome, Sally. Professor Zayed Ayadat is the director of the Center for Strategic Studies at the University of Jordan 
and a professor of political science at the Prince Al Hussein School of International Studies. His research, as you know, focuses on human rights, conflict management and resolution, the democratization of politics in the Middle East, and Islamic politics. He's worked with the Royal Hashemite Court in Jordan, as well as numerous non-government institutions, and is chair of the Board of Arab Renaissance for Development and Democracy. Welcome. And at the end, I'll introduce again Camille Lacoste, who is policy analyst at MPI and MPI Europe, and she'll say some, some words about the, the research we've been working on. But great to have all of you here and looking forward to this this very intense conversation. And so with that, let's turn to the conversation. Let's start with the immediate, which is, you know, what has the impact of the pandemic been on refugees, on host communities and host countries? And let me turn to Hassan and Sally to, to start this conversation. Hassan, why don't you start us off? Yes, uh, good morning, good afternoon, uh, everyone. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you, DSP and MPI for hosting us in uh, uh, this interesting uh, webinar. Uh, as you know, today we discuss uh, a controversial issue that has affected on uh, the global level and the refugees uh, were severely impacted besides the host community. Uh, COVID-19 has affected Syrian refugees in different aspects and at the same time uh, in different sectors, not only in, in livelihood, in livelihood, in education, in health, and also we have to take in our consideration the funding allocated for Syrian refugees already has been split between COVID-19 uh, response and existing projects. Uh, if we mention how is uh, affected, we have seen a lot of Syrian refugees lost uh, their job because of the COVID-19. And uh, also we noticed uh, a lot of Syrian uh, refugees uh, have been taken on unpaid leave uh, sure, the host community uh, also they suffered, but maybe uh, in less percentage. Uh, also, I can mention, uh, according to some statistics, more than 70% uh, of Syrian refugees, uh, uh, they cannot access to some services and also as refugees had uh, many uh, needs uh, on meat even before pandemic. Uh, Always, as you know, we have uh, a question uh, around access to the labor market, uh, which were often challenging. And uh, now, uh, as a result of uh, increased unemployment, unfortunately, tension with uh, host community may become more difficult to manage. Uh, besides uh, refugees, sometimes I perceived as uh, competing with uh, nationals uh, for jobs. Uh, at the same time, uh, this uh, uh, it uh, it uh, leads uh, to increase refugees percentage in the informal sector, where abuse is more common, uh, face low pay, long working hours, and uh, uh, bad uh, working uh, conditions. Uh, also, it's very important to mention, uh, according to statistics more than 90% of Syrian companies, their business and operation strategies in 2020 uh, affected neg negatively as a result of uh, the COVID uh, uh, crisis. Uh, last but not uh, the least, it's very important also to take in our consideration, uh, COVID-19 response was managed by Turkish NGOs and INGOs and uh, few uh, Syrian organization. Uh, but access to the needy refugee families was taking into account only Syrian 
refugees and uh, we don't integrate uh, in uh, our projects uh, uh, refugees who came uh, from Yemen or Egypt or uh, Iraq and this is considered as gap uh, in, uh, in, 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 in this point. Uh, over family, uh, Mr. Amber. Thank you, Hassan. Appreciate that. Uh, Sally, how are you seeing this in Lebanon? Uh, thank you, Andrew, and thank you uh, for the invitation to be on this uh, esteemed panel. I'm, I'm quite honored. It's very difficult to speak about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in Lebanon without touching upon the myriad of crises that the country is currently facing. Um, so Lebanon's facing a multitude of crises right now. We have of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, like everywhere else in the world. Um, but we also have an economic and financial collapse and meltdown that is taking place in real time that started in October 2019. We have political instability um, and we have the aftermath of the August 2020 Beirut blast. Um, and so all of this paints quite a bleak picture, a picture of desperation, to be honest, to all communities across Lebanon. I mean, I'm here sort of frazzled today, um, you know, given the, the, the situation in the country that's unfolded in the last 48 hours, and I can touch upon that a bit later. Um, but I'm speaking from a position of privilege. So imagine the vulnerable communities, especially Syrian refugee communities that um, are currently experiencing the devastation of this economic fallout, the massive explosion and the COVID-19 pandemic um, outbreak. Just to you know, give you a few points um, to paint this picture. Inflation in Lebanon is currently at 400%. We've, we're seeing a 400% increase in food prices and goods. Um, and this is rising every day. Um, in, in, in Oxfam surveys to refugees, we're seeing that the assistance that they're getting in, in, their, in, their, in their income, should they even be lucky enough to be working, is not enough even to cover their basic needs. The COVID-19 pandemic has made everything much worse, um, both to host communities, but specifically to refugees. Only 2% of surveyed people during the lockdown um, in January 2020 are still working, 2%. 81% of households who were surveyed could not even purchase um, enough to, you know, to see them through this lockdown. And this is mainly due to not having enough income. The latest um, uh, vulnerability uh, assessment of refugees that UNHCR um, conducts on a yearly basis shows that 89% of Syrian refugees are currently living in extreme poverty. And this is a stark deterioration compared to last year's estimate of around 55 this is all coupled with economic insecurity and the continued deterioration of the living conditions in the country. Um, and of course, the not so secret narrative of the uh, Lebanese the go government and the ruling el elites of sort of their pro-return and anti-integration or, or, or one can say anti-refugee policies over the last um, few years. Um, we, we're also seeing um, that, you know, when it comes to COVID-19 specifically, that there's real stigmatization or actual fear of st stigmatization among refugees that is quite alarming. There's high positivity and death rates among Syrian refugees, um, but the majority do not have access to testing. And even when these testing fees are covered, um, accessing testing centers is not just, it's just not worth, uh, for example, the risks of arrest um, that refugees may face, given that 
um, a majority of them do not have legal residence. Um, so the stigma of, 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 of contacting the, the, the virus is, is very real. Um, and, 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 and this fear is, is, is genuine amongst the refugee population, um, fearing um, isolation, arrest, contracting the virus itself, not being able to work or access, accessing their basic needs, being harassed, or even worse, being deported or forced um, uh, to return. We're seeing, of course, within this very dire situation, an increased dependence on aid, um, specifically for Syrian refugees, but now we're also seeing it to the Lebanese host communities, um, where, where we've also seen that poverty in Lebanon has, is now over 55%. This is, these are figures from last year, so they're much worse now, and unemployment at over 30% um, in the country. Um, so a very, very you know, depressing situation, to, to say the least. Over. That is, that is really quite dire. Thank you for sharing that. Um, as we look forward, I mean, Professor Zaid, tell us, you know, how can, how can Jordan priorities include refugees? How can the Syrian population be incorporated into recovery processes? And what should the priorities be for the country going forward? How do you see this playing out? Well, thank you, Andrew. And uh, I'm really delighted to be part of this panel. And this is a great discussion and timely needed uh, when uh, indeed. Well, question what priority should be, maybe only gods know. I don't know uh, how we're going to do it. But uh, let me bring another thing to the context of the refugees issue at large before I start talking about priorities and incorporating and integrating refugees in Jordan. Well, look, at, at, at the global level, I, I can see it's a global south divide and the global south suffering from this movement of people, uh, migration and refugees. And according to numbers, of course, 85% of the refugees and migrants are in the south, from the south to the south in the south. While the discourse in terms of refugees issues and migration are, and the rules of the game are produced in the global north. And that takes me to the kind of the mindset and the mentality that we've been dealing with these issues since ever, especially the Syrian ones. So if we go back, this is the 10th anniversary of the crisis in Syria. And the mindset has been very simple. Containment is a cold war. And again, I'm bringing my political science hat. It's just keep him away, keep him ashore, uh, unfortunately. And, you know, we do whatever. So host communities should integrate uh, refugees within them, regardless of any political burdens uh, on the local communities and host communities. And I'm not advocating myself, but this is the reality it is. While, you know, I say certain Trump admitting, I don't know how many, how many refugees for, for that reason. Now, the combination of the Syrian refugees crisis with the rise of Daesh and the radicalization and violent extremism and also populism, it's the entire picture, mindset, mentality of dealing with the issue is dangerous and it's not humanitarian. So we need to keep the, the risk away. And that just contributed to the alarming uh, issue of the refugee crisis, of the Syrian refugee crisis in the region as well. And I leave alone, of course, using the, the refugees themselves as a card for political bargaining and strategic dialogue between big players in the region. Uh, and this is very clear, it speaks for itself. Now, that aside, uh, we see the COVID-19 been impacting people 
across the globe in uneven way. And only deepening the inequalities and hitting the poor and the weak in the societies. And all data shows that. And uh, refugees is everywhere, including, you know, poor, including women, including youth, are, are more and more subject to, to the suffering of the either the pandemic in terms of health or the consequences of it in terms of integration or economic situation. And the Syrian refugees in Jordan uh, is no exception of that, unfortunately. Despite all what had been done in Jordan to, uh, to, to somewhat accommodate their needs and are trying to, to, to support and help integrating them and, and minimizing their suffering, if you wish. Now, but if you want to ask me about the priority needs to be done for the recovery plans in Jordan, whereby the refugees, the refugees be part of the plan itself and also integrated in future activities executing that plan, uh, I think the most important thing should be a comprehensive and continuous impact and need assessment of both the host and refugees communities, which we lack in. And it is, you know, it's like a crisis management mentality, again, uh, just hit a run, uh, ad hoc. It's not a systematic assessment needs for the host and, and, and refugees communities. So uh, a good understanding of the most impacted segments, who, how, and how much, as well as this is key for targeted evidence-based policy for recovery and also incorporating and integrating the Syrian refugees into the plan. I just want to just cite very quick, uh, in one study during the early stages of the pandemic in Jordan, one third of the Syrian workers had lost their jobs permanently due to the crisis compared to only 17% of Jordanians. This is just to prove what I've been saying about uneven impact of the pandemic. Uh, on the segments of, of societies. Uh, prior to the lockdown in Jordan, the average monthly income during the past 12 months had been 368 Jordanian dinars, while the average income in March, this uh, 202020, uh, was reduced to 215 dinars. This decline, of course, is much more bigger when it comes to the minimum age paid for the Syrians' workers. Uh, and other examples, like 60% of the workers express that cash support to families who have lost their source of income was an important measure to minimize the adverse impact of this crisis. So cash, what if we're not prioritize? So the cash support is important uh, element of any recovery plan. Uh, so this is, this could be one way to prioritize. The other one would be building an inclusive database of the people, of all people's demographics, particularly those working on the informal sector, living in the marginalization, migrants and refugees. And then inclusion of refugees and migrants in the overall response to the pandemic and post-pandemic consequences, as together they constitute, I mean, these refugees, 30% of Jordanian's population. So we're not talking about, you know, uh, just a known number. 30% of Jordan populations are refugees and they have to have a say in any recovery plan that Jordan's planning for the future. Uh, we should also, in, in, in an exercise that we've done here at CSS Center for Strategic Studies, forecasting the macroeconomic recovery for the country 
Here are some, some of the scenarios. During the third quarter of 2020, economy contracted by, as, as we all know now, minus 2.2% compared to positive growth of 1.9 in 2019. Uh, and that marks the worst economic downturn in Jordan since 1993. And I'm bringing this number for you to expect and to predict and to foresee what futures the Syrian refugees in Jordans are awaiting because of this uh, downturn in Jordan's economy. The unemployment rate rose to 23.9, almost 25% recently. I mean, the numbers are not out yet. This is very alarming. And if you add to that the, the increasing of the poverty, uh, people who are living in the poverty lines in Jordan, this is then the socially threatening indicators in Jordan, impacting both Jordanian and Syrian. So any priorities should be dealing with this unemployment and poverty as well, without, of course, excluding the refugees out of them. Uh, there are a lot of things maybe I share with you later on, not to waste your time talking about the scenarios, but the other priority should be strengthening the capacity of the healthcare system. Uh, probably some of you have been, been you know, following what had happened last Saturday when we lost seven Jordanians because of the lack of the oxygen at the Salt Hospital. And this just tells you about the infrastructure of healthcare system, the personnel, the training, and the value system, the commitment to the serving to the others, which is a very important issue as well. Others would be certainly advancing the local, digital, and agricultural platforms for both uh, host communities and refugees, uh, and to regulate the informal uh, working sectors because most of the refugees are going into that place. Uh, I will I will stop here. I have. Uh, other ideas to add to priority, but this is to kick off the discussion. Sir, um, I let's go to Hassan now for, I want to get you in, in the conversation talking about how refugees in Turkey can be part of the solution, part of the recovery process, how partners, international donors can, can engage refugees directly in this process. And then I want to get Claudia in the mix as well. And talking, you know, get you to talk a little bit about the EU. So what we just know, Claudia, I'm coming to you next to to think about how the EU plays a role also in this process going forward and the broader international community. But Hassan, yes, uh, the refugees could play the main role in reviving the economic situation if we build the skills and capacities. Uh, in my point of view, we have to encourage social inclusion and integration but not only through language courses. The COVID-19 has made social inclusion for refugees are more difficult. And sometimes, unfortunately, refugees became a target of a blame uh, for the bad economic situation. I know language is uh, most important and still the biggest challenge for uh, Syrian refugees in Turkey uh, when we talk uh, about uh, accessing the labor market, but. Uh, it's at the same time not enough because first of all, we need uh, uh, to tailor uh, language uh, classes and to be better designed uh, to respond to the needs of refugees and labor market. Uh, the second one, uh, we have to work with host government to conduct some awareness session to explain the positive existing of refugees on the economy. 
because sometimes some Turkish people consider Syrian refugees are causing of unemployment because they are working for lower wages and lower salaries. Uh, and this is very important maybe to conduct awareness sessions about uh, this point because sometimes uh, it uh, played a main role to increase tension between post community, host community and uh, refugees. Uh, also, maybe we can think about how we can uh, do it or encourage establishing a joint business or activities are managed by Turkish and Syrian citizens. Uh, this uh, could uh, play uh, a role in social integration. And uh, uh, when we talk about capacity building, yes, capacity building courses have conducted, but at the same time, when, when we see the ability to connect some participants to job opportunities after capacity building has, has, has uh, become low. Uh, often vocational training, unfortunately, has become a goal in itself, uh, rather than an instrument to support employability and access to the labor market. Uh, also, maybe sometimes as donors and INGO, it's good uh, during the COVID uh, to work to provide flexible financial support to strengthen the economic resilience of host uh, countries and ensuring refugees' inclusion. Uh, because, uh, as I mentioned, most Syrian SMEs have spent their savings to cover uh, operational costs during. Uh, the COVID. Uh, also, some donors and INGO, yes, uh, they do it raising awareness on the importance of legal and formal work, but at the same time, without subverting the work permit uh, application, especially in COVID, uh, it could be uh, useless. Uh, and uh, uh, last but not the least, uh, I encourage, as uh, usual, to make the most of funding for, for livelihood projects to create more and better job opportunities uh, for refugees and host communities. But it's very important, previously, to assess labor market needs and support new and existing uh, business. Over uh, Hami, Andrew, if you have any questions, I'm ready for Yes. Thank you, Hassan. That's great. Um, we're starting to get questions coming in. They're great. I want to encourage you, everyone who's participating, to keep asking questions, either through the Q&A function or through the chat function. We will get to those in a minute. But I do want to do one more round, and I'm going to ask the panelists to be brief in their responses on this. But it's an important question. So if you can give us a, both a complete answer and do it quickly. I know that's unfair to ask, but it's important. Which is, what have we learned in the past 10 years that should take us from the Syrian refugee response that should we should adjust going forward what have we learned that's gonna that we should you know as we look to you know let's hope it's not the next 10 years but but in reality we know many refugees stay right i mean many other conditions may or may not be be such people can return so at least in the coming years what could be different what could be new what have we learned that we should be modeling something and adjusting our patterns slightly differently i'm gonna go to all the panelists if you can do a two or three minute response that would be great um uh, let's start on this with Sally. Thank you, um, Andrew. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a it's an interesting question. It's an important question, but um, from a Lebanon perspective, it's also a hard question um, to answer. 
Um, specifically, the reason why I say this is because um, you know, the, we're in free fall, the country's in free fall right now. Um, and um, we're seeing the humanitarian situation deteriorate dramatically for Syrian refugees, but as I said again, also for the host communities. Um, and I think, you know, if we want to learn from the past, we also, and you know, we, we also want to anticipate what the future looks like and what sort of international support for um, Lebanon and Syrian refugees in Lebanon looks like. It's it's very hard to um, to prioritize, um, uh, you know, what the needs are today because the gaps are so incredibly huge with such, you know, severe unfolding crises, um, you know, on the within the health sector or the economy or livelihoods or the protection of refugees. You know, food security right now is 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 quite concerning with the, with potentially the lifting of the subsidies um, at the end of uh, uh, the month. Cash assistance programs are not sufficient to cover this. You know, the most severely vulnerable Syrian refugees, um, and and anxieties are a long time high. And so it's difficult to anticipate what the future looks like when the situation is so fluid. Um, with that said, I mean, you know, it, it, there are a few things that, um, you know, we can touch upon. Um, one, one important point is that in Lebanon specifically, um, we need a partner. Um, we need a functional government, a functional political system, um, um, and one that is transparent and accountable and makes decisions um, and, and, and can you know, help the country to start to recover from all of these um, extreme uh, crises. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's important when it comes to what we've learned from the last 10 years that we do need a government um, uh, counterpart. We need a government partner, but this needs to be one that is truly representative. And so far in Lebanon, sadly, this has not been the case. I mean, we've we've not it's been over seven months since the last government resigned and the Beirut blast and 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 given the situation, we still see no end in sight on when there will be um, some you know political will um, moving forward. Um, Yet one thing for sure, and that what we can learn from, um, just to try and end on a little bit more of a positive <laughs> point here, is that I think the multi-purpose cash assistance program to Syrian refugees in Lebanon um, is, is something that uh, has shown to be uh, taking cash to scale um, and really use some innovative approaches. Um, and one that can also uh, help as Lebanon is looking forward to how to address its own um, uh, social protection needs and develop a comprehensive social protection framework, hopefully one that you know uh, responds to all communities in the country, then it is important that um, uh, one thing we can learn is 10 years on is, is what can the, um, uh, the, 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 you know, the Lebanon, government of Lebanon uh, learn from you know such uh, an, an extensive um, cash assistance program um, to Syrian refugees, and how can the learning from that be adapted um, uh, to to to, for example, a, a comprehensive Lebanese social protection um, system? Over. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, a hard road forward, a few le positive lessons, but also a real need for a partner and a real need. I mean, this is a problem that goes beyond the refugee situation. I mean, this is a, there's a larger systemic issue that, that this is immersed in, obviously. Uh, Zaid, if I could turn to you next. 
you don't expect my answers to be in two to three minutes uh, in a <laughs> professor uh, political scientists uh, never stop <laughs> but no look uh, uh, what we need to do uh, first of all I, I think you know any any response plan the the future Jordan's response plan which is uh, the Ministry of planning uh, begun updating uh, now should be fully funded since the 2019-2021 was 65% deficit, which means 1 billion and 468 million never actually arrived to Jordan to help the Syrians or to help in the response. So this is the lesson learned, pay the money. So people can, the governments and the NGOs and other sectors can do what they have to do. Uh, without getting into details, I'll propose uh, scenarios as proposed new business models on how we can respond in Jordan to this crisis. And that helps, I hope, decision makers and donors uh, at the same time. The first one is to capitalize on the existing initiative with the EU partners. However, more capacity building for the candidate business factories are highly recommended to qualify them for exports compliant with the incentive schemes. In July 2016, for example, the EU and Jordan agreed to simplify the rules of origin that Jordanian exporters use in their trade with the EU. Both sides reviewed and approved this initiative in December 2018. The initiative is part of EU's support for Jordan in the ongoing Syrian refugees crisis and intends to make it easier for Jordan to export to the EU encourage investments and create jobs both for Jordanians and for Syrians. This initiative is valid until 21st December 2030, I mean 2030, and covers a range of manufacturers products. So for exporters to be able to use this alternative rules of origin, production must involve a minimum of 15% of Syrian refugees labor in the production facilities. So this is a huge thing that we really need to rethink and prioritize in terms of training. Scenario two could be using cash-based assistance and matching local business needs with refugee skills so that earned income channels back into local markets use cash assistance to as collaterals for financing refugees like the SMEs and others. Uh, and the scenario three would be the energy provision. As most can develop off-grid solar energy solutions for refugees, there are opportunities to use aid to build the market for these solutions by supporting consumer financing models or helping integrate refugees as distributors or manufacturers of these energy solutions. We also need to promote the SME development amongst refugees credit accessibility to finance so we can improve uh, uh, and, uh, you know, back them. We can improve the work and back any guaranteed by international countries. And then probably we need in this scenario to allow, to allocate for new SME cash support programs, either grants or equity as a collateral for financing. The third one would be food security. And I think Sally mentioned that when it comes to Lebanon, Again, Jordan to identify or allocate lots of uh, desert lands for agriculture to be utilized by Jordanian and Syrians. Agriculture cooperative concept could be applied and formed 
in a manner to achieve this goal. Women empowerment approach is absolutely at the center of this. So that's what I can think of for future. Great, thank you. I appreciate it, Professor. And that, that, was, that was both insightful and concise, actually, um, as a fellow political scientist. And, and Hassan, uh, I want to give you the last word before we go to my colleague, Camille, and then we, we're going to open up to, to the questions that have been coming through. But Hassan, two or three minutes. I mean, briefly, what, what have we learned that we could do better going forward? Yes, uh, actually, I uh, will talk not only on uh, Turkey level, in general, in Syrian uh, response, Actually, the first one, localization, how we can activate uh, this acronym, uh, not to be only terminology or, or acronym. Uh, today, if you ask me, do we see in general INGOs is uh, uh, making a humanitarian action as local as possible, as international as, international as necessary? Actually, when we go to practical level, uh, unfortunately, the situation not like uh, that. Uh, the second one, uh, sustainable and, uh, uh, and impact projects, okay? Uh, this is, uh, we have to start uh, in the first day, even so when we talk about relief and the humanitarian response, we have to think how we can secure sustainable and impact projects, because as you see, uh, the most of countries today, they cut some of fund as a result of uh, COVID-19 because uh, it's a, a glo global issue. Uh, and uh, in general, in conflict locations, what we have to do it, uh, this is very important. And we have to, to work on Nixos cycle uh, as a humanitarian development and peace building. Uh, also in the, in the first day, I know, uh, uh, maybe in uh, Syrian response, uh, till now, the most of donors, they, they still deal with uh, Syrian crisis only as a humanitarian and relief response, but uh, the situation when you go to inside Syria, not, uh, uh, not like that. And the last one, uh, avoid the duplications of efforts. Unfortunately, till now, we see overlapping in uh, some response in health, wash, and education, and all uh, of these sectors. Uh, that's uh, from my side. Over from thank you. That's on. Um, thank you. This was a fabulous panel. I want to thank all the panelists for for their insights. Don't go away because we have questions for you that are that are coming to you in a minute. But I want to turn it over to Camille Lacos, my wonderful colleague from MPI and MPI Europe who had, was the lead author and the coordinator in preparing the report. Tell us what's in the report. I mean, you were looking at, at experiences around the world um, of incorporating refugee and forced migrant populations and what that might inform in terms of the Syrian crisis and in terms of Syrian uh, displacement. Um, what did you find out? Tell us a little bit about this report. And let's, uh, Lisa, if we can go ahead and, and put the link to the report up again as well so people have it front and center. Camille. Thank you, Andrew, and yeah, and thank you to all the panelists for, for the interesting discussion. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll try to be brief uh, to leave some time for question, um, but I'll go back a bit on the process in some of the um, case studies, you know, best practices, good practices that, that we try to alight in this report. So our starting point, uh, you know, conversation with DST, DSP now about a year ago, with the acknowledgement um, of the many pressing needs faced by Syrian refugees, but also all communities in the past 10 years but also the acknowledgement um, that there's been many new developments in the field of development, humanitarian actors um, that have happened in the region and that in a way, 
the Syrian crisis um, as catalyzed. And so from the MPI side, um, building on our work in many, in various other contexts, uh, we were well aware that many of these innovations have also happened in other regions. Um, with protracted refugee crisis in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, where our team has done a lot of work in Europe, in Asia, or even in Australia. Um, and so we started with an assessment of, you know, the most pressing needs in the Syrian context. Um, you know, these areas that have not seen much progress in recent years due to lack of political will, lack of funding, or simply the absence of technical solution to, to these issues. Um, and here we look for policy, for examples of policy of programs in countries and communities that had faced similar challenges and had tried to address them uh, and what could be learned from, from this mechanism. Um, and so in the past year, we've collected data uh, from nearly 20 programs and policy framework across 16 countries and organizers thinking across five main, five main thematic areas. So protection, social protection, education, livelihood and healthcare. Um, and healthcare, as you know, is now top concern in the context of the pandemic. Uh, this is something that we've all been thinking about in the past months. Uh, barriers to access to healthcare has been even more concerning for refugees. Um, and here, for example, we look at um, the example of a program in Costa Rica where the government has been working with UNHCR and managed to extend access to public healthcare, health services to the refugees population and is now working um, toward making this, this game durable. Another area we looked at, and I think uh, Asan mentioned it, uh, was access to livelihood. We all know this has been a main hurdle for Syrian refugees, especially during this crisis with the lockdown, especially in Lebanon, uh, with the economic crisis, as, as Sally mentioned. And here we looked, for example, at how a country like Ethiopia has fulfilled its promise to enhance refugee access to the labor market. And more specifically, you know, what were the implications of, of this promise? You know what it means um, that you, you need, for instance, to um, give refugee access, like freedom. You need to grant them freedom of movement. You need a system of procedures uh, to grant them work permits. But what we've also looked at, and I think this is also important in the context of the Jordan discussion that Zaid mentioned, is how development actors need to deliver on their own promise to help. You know, Ethiopia maintain this momentum and this promise on, on delivering work permits for refugees. Um, we've also studied how in Latin America, the migration unit at the Inter-American Development Bank is working towards building more resilient economies in the region. Um, and also has civil society actors like Migraflex in Brazil are supporting refugee entrepreneurs with activity closely tailored to the needs of refugee and the concerns that they face, but also trying to change the narrative on refugees and how they can contribute to the all societies. And finally, I'll, I'll end with a few words on protection, um, because this is one of the main gaps faced by, by Syrian refugees and refugee more broadly in the Middle East region. Um, where we stage, you know, what have been some of the innovation, some of the policy changes in, um, in, on protection issue. How Peru, for instance, has rolled out this temporary state permit of Venezuelan migrants and refugees since 2017. What have been the benefits and the limitation of this mechanism? and how the, it can pave the way for, you know, to, toward more permanent uh, solution for refugees and migrants. Um, we've also analyzed how countries like Colombia develop policies and systems to prevent statelessness, which is also, you know, an issue in the region. Um, how Colombia, you know, with 
set up this measure with few document requirements, free of cost, and that was rolled out in quite a sensitive political environment, uh, which is something that I think we've, we've all discussed uh, today. And finally, um, we were reminded how, you know, to look into some of the more operational challenges and administrative burdens uh, and how they could be overcome looking, for instance, at this one-stop shop um, experiment in, in Ethiopia. So now, I mean, to conclude, all of these efforts come with difficulties. It implies to manage public opinion, you know, to include refugees in already quite complex policy frameworks. Um, and while this policy can be inclusive on paper, enforcing them is never, is never straightforward. Uh, it takes continued political leadership, engagement between different ministries that don't always talk to each other to begin with, and the constant effort of civil society actors, um, to including to monitor what's, what's being achieved. Um, and that's also, and, and I think this is a context of today's discussion um, as we're heading toward the, the donor conference, many of our case studies show that, you know, the success, the acceptability, the sustainability um, of many of these inclusive policies and program very much depend um, on the continuous support of international donors, uh, which is particularly needed now, even though we're seeing some states, um, you know, exited this, this crisis in some part of the world. Um, I mean, what, what a report say, I mean, what, what we're very well aware of is like, you know, each policy, each program is very much context specific, um, but I think we still capture some, um, some of the common trends and tools that are needed to support pathway to, to durable solution for refugees, either to promote new instruments, um, but also to, you know, pave the way for structural, for structural changes. And maybe what, one last word I, I'd like to, to conclude with this idea that I think we've been working with is the fact that there needs to be adequate policy frameworks um, to allow for many of these international projects to fully reach their objectives. Um, and I think, you know, in the, in the light of the donor conference, um, this is something that needs to be part of this conversation. They are very sensitive issues, um, but that's only like that's often a condition for the success of this of this international intervention. Thank you. Thank you, Camille. I mean, this is, I, I, I highly commend the report to you um, and, and congratulations, Camille. I know that was an enormous amount of work and thank you, DSP. This was really a, a real partnership and a great partnership of sharing ideas back and forth. Um, Lana, Stade, and, and Catherine, of course, I mean, really spent a lot of time with you on this and with people in your, in your network. I mean, getting feedback on what would be meaningful for organizations in the region um, from the broader global experience and what wasn't as relevant as well. But hopefully some of these things will prove useful um, that are being done around the world. Um, and just as as matter of conversation, it's something I think we lack a lot of overall. Um, I spend a lot of time on, on the other large uh, displacement flow, which is Venezuelans uh, in Latin America. Um, and for us, I have to say the other way is being part of, of this project on the periphery is, um, is also learning what we can take back on the other side of the ocean, right? I mean, it is incredibly important to have this back and forth, you know, from Sub-Saharan Africa to the Middle East, to Latin America, to Europe. I mean, we often operate in silos and injecting these new ideas in are really useful sometimes in having aha moments that, that help push us beyond our, our usual our usual assumptions about what's possible. So um, with that, there are a lot of questions. I don't think we're gonna get to all of them. We have about 15 minutes left. I'm gonna leave Catherine a couple minutes to close our session. So I'm gonna read a series of questions. Hopefully the panelists have had a chance to look at the Q&A in the chat section. So they've already thought about some of these questions, but I'm gonna read my abbreviated version of them to you. 
Um, and then I'm going to go back to each panelist and you can answer quickly whichever of the ones you want. So let me, um, there is a set of questions. Marta asks about local schools and how they're part of the solution and how they can be, you know, where that, what else can be done. There is a question, um, a, I missed the name on it, from how uh, Syrian children have been affected by a year out of school with the lockdown and, and what effect that's going to have on the long term. There's also a question um, from someone about how are NGOs and INGOs operating in times of COVID-19, what has had to be scaled down and if it's affected the financing of projects uh, in the region. There's a question about resettlement and is resettlement increasing? We see the US government re-engaging on refugee programs. It has not happened yet, I should say, but but a commitment that, that starting in October, there'll be a significant increase and perhaps the rest of this year as well. Um, and you know, are other countries following suit? What effect does that have uh, on on Syrian displacement, Syrian refugees? There's a question from my friend David Smolensky, David Smolensky, about what can uh, Venezuelans, who is from Venezuela himself and works with the United American States, what should people in Latin America learn from the the region about displacement and what they can do in Latin America? Um, there is a, uh, a question specifically for Professor Zaid on uh, the JRP and whether there's been any evaluation that has been well-funded, you know, what has been done in terms of evaluating outcomes. Um, and there's a question on, which is a good overarching one on how to engage refugees themselves, not merely as recipients, but uh, in designing and carrying out uh, the response to the refugee crisis. So with that, let me turn it back to all of you. And in fact, Hassan, you should, you might want to start with that last one. In addition to anything else you want to respond to from the remaining questions. So Hassan, let me go to you and then we'll go to Sally and we'll go through all the panelists here. Yes. Uh, actually, when uh, we talk about uh, local schools, uh, maybe uh, the case in Turkey is good because uh, actually uh, refugees uh, students in uh, general uh, is uh, integrated well in uh, the Turkish uh, education uh, system. Uh, but uh, at the same time, when we talk about uh, COVID and how we will see the situation after the vaccination uh, will start. Also, when we talk about uh, uh, health centers, uh, actually uh, they vaccinate uh, all people, host communities and refugees without do it, uh, any discrimination in, uh, in, in, in this uh, point. Uh, how, how we see the situation during uh, the next uh, period, uh, maybe it could be better because as you know, today lockdown in Turkey uh, is, uh, is, is less than uh, previous. And uh, the economic cycle is uh, working again, but at the same time, we have to take uh, some lessons learned uh, from this period and how we can uh, make more integration for uh, refugees if uh, like this uh, COVID uh, happened uh, again. Uh, because uh, as I mentioned, yes, the host community uh, suffered from unemployment and all of this, uh, but unfortunately the percentage in the refugees level uh, was higher as uh, uh, percentage. Thank you, Hassan. Uh, Sally. Thank you. So I'll touch upon uh, a few uh, questions. Uh, I'll respond to just a, a few of them um, quickly, if I may. Um, so on the, the, the part on sort of the impact of Syrian children 
now being a year out, out of school and and um so i mean oxfam is not an education actor um but just you know it's it's important to note because this comes out in our various protection monitoring that even before the pandemic um syrian children um were still having trouble accessing um schools in lebanon and there were a number of reasons for this uh, basically basically the cost of living um uh, the the cost of, of of sort of the freedom of movement um uh, especially given that there's, you know, the 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 you know, around 80% of Syrian refugees don't have legal residency, um, and uh, and you know, the the access to livelihoods, which is becoming more and more scarce in an economic situation. So we're seeing a lot more, you know, school dropouts and kids having, you know, uh, forced uh, to 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 work, and 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 a myriad of other reasons. So, so and for Syrian refugees, it, 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 so so this. So it's 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 beyond just this past year. We've seen, uh, sadly, um, a a decline in uh, in 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 accessing school um, uh, for you know even that predate the, the pandemic, um, and also given the the current situation in the country with with a lot of road closures since October 17th and 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 the October 17th revolution in Lebanon. Um, on how we operate as INGOs in the pandemic, with I mean, we are def we have definitely scaled down um, a lot of our you know, operations, sadly, because of the various lockdowns in 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 the country that we've had to endure. But we've always prioritized life-saving activities, so that never stopped. And although in you know in Lebanon, for example, we had faced a lot of challenges with this, so the government had you know it, at several points in time in the lockdown imposed restrictions um, on 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 organizations to access the field and access ITSs and to operate and what 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 is the definition of a humanitarian sort of you know uh, activity and response um, but we lobbied very hard and uh, um, uh, you know collectively as organizations and 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 with the UN and to donors um, the government to ensure that access to the most vulnerable communities and essential life-saving um, uh, activities such as around water sanitation and health, especially in a pandemic, um, continue. Um, the point on uh, quickly on resettlement, um, you know, we, we all know very well that we are you know, we're not even close to 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 sharing the burden equally as um, a, 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 as as a global community when it comes to this refugee response. Um, and you know, uh, it, it's good to see you know the U.S. you know start to pick up on this. But I mean, the it, it, there there's there's a lot more work and you know serious. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, unrep, you know, on uh, the inequality when it comes to to sharing the burden equally um, among states and for refugees in Lebanon. Um, I mean, when it comes to the three durable solutions, um, integration is not an option. Although you know we're operating, doing everything we can to you know work to 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 make their stay as dignified as as possible, which is becoming even more challenging in this context. Um, resettlement options are extremely limited, and Syria is still not safe to return yet. Refugees are stuck between, you know, in 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 a catch twenty two where they're being pushed by, you know, government policies to return, um, and and also the context itself is pushing them to return. So that's um, very uh, worrying. And just one more point, and I'll and I, and I can stop on. I saw a question that you didn't mention, Andrew, but around Palestinian refugees. Um, 
and 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 it's important to also not forget the presence of you know 500,000 Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and Palestinian refugees from Syria as well who who sometimes you know yes we we do forget them um sadly um and 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 we do need to do better here and specifically when it comes to um the funding situation that uh, that that has been you know it's impacting the entire response, but specifically for Palestinian refugees, uh, the impact is is far, far greater um, as well. So thank you, over. Thank you, Sally. We are three minutes from ending. We may go over a minute or two here, but Professor Zaid, if you want to give a quick two minute response and then we'll go to Claudia. I'm a lucky person when it comes to time, it comes to me. <laughs> well, uh, I will react to two things. Uh, about the evaluation of the assessments of the uh, Jordan response plan. Uh, I mean, once you know that 65% of the fund is not there, and imagining the very efficiency of Jordan governance of dealing with the funds, then you can simply calculate the outcomes. I mean, very ironic and cynical, which means bad, except for some access to education. And recently, the Minister of Health just you know, included the Syrian refugees for vaccination and healthcare at the same rate for non-secured uh, Jordanians. But I wanted to, to talk back again about the issue of the mindset and the bigger picture. And I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that Sally just, just touched upon that, uh, not only about the Palestinian refugees, you know, and uh, when you talk about the Palestinian refugees, then we'll come to Jordan. When it comes to talking to about Syrian refugees, then we'll come to Jordan again and what to do about it. See, the focus, first, the dividing mechanisms by donors and the competing projects in the market when it comes to the refugees and hosting communities and, and refugees communities, is just distracting. It's just losing focus. And, you know, we end up having NGOs and intellectuals and institutions competing for funded-driven kind of projects, I'm not really sure are they contributing to solving the problem or just to make it permanent. So the issue is of integrating refugees within host communities and never about rebuilding Syria and the safe return of the refugees to Syria itself, which is, to my mind, the issue that we just decided to neglect. The question would be for, for what reasons and whose interest we are doing that. And yes, Syria is not a safe place yet for a return, but this is, shouldn't be the major issue of focus of our efforts. Uh, of course, of course, well, it's simple. Well, anyone will say, how about these people are suffering, waiting for the Syria to be safe, for people to come back. I'm not saying, you know, focus on one and forgetting the others. But what seems to be forgotten now is that this is a very important issues is either the safe return to a safe, stable Syria or to resettlement to a third safe place, which both are out of the equation at this discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. And, and um, a virtual clap for everyone here for, for your time, your insights, your honesty, um, as we talk about a really difficult situation, for which there's not always solutions, but yes, there are strategies and opportunities going forward. And I think you've all underlined where some of those lie. Thank you. I apologize for the questions we didn't get answered. I know there are many more. Um, and you know, hopefully we'll have future occasions to continue the conversation. The audio will be available on, on the event website as of tomorrow, Thursday. 
Um, and you, you have the link to the report already in the chat. Um, and let me turn it over on behalf of MPI. Thank you for this opportunity to spend the last hour and 15 minutes with you, the opportunity to work with DSP, the opportunity to be with our panelists. Thank you again. And let me turn over to Catherine for final remarks. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, really just to echo um, thanks to all of the panelists and the participants. I think it's been a slightly overwhelming conversation. I think it just shows the scale of the challenge that we that we still need to confront and, and the ambition that we need to have going into Brussels. So I really hope that this conversation can inform the day of dialogue and the ministerial conversations that we'll be seeing and that we'll see some generous commitment to, to support colleagues. Um, I also think it's often easy to feel a bit hopeless in the scale of a lot of our challenge and the report that MPI and DSP produced I think is really good to show that there is a lot of, of grappling with many similar issues across the world and a huge amount of learning that we that we can that we can draw from that as we as we rethink our strategies and so I really want to encourage people to, to take a look and to reach out um, to follow up on that and to thank the European Regional Development and Protection Programme for their really generous funding to DSP that made this research possible so thank you so much for that um, and yeah we're, we're looking forward to continuing to engage in the lead up to Brussels and, and on these issues moving forward so thank you so much to our panelists we really appreciate it and thank you to everyone for attending. Thank you everybody have a great rest of your day.